Hello listeners, just a quick message before this episode begins. This episode was originally a bonus episode, which our patrons enjoyed last year. For some personal reasons, the episode we planned to release today has been delayed, but we hope you enjoy this one instead. Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the late 18th to early 19th century English novelist Jane Austen. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. They are the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. The episode will contain brief mentions of sex and masturbation, a discussion of hypothetical incest, and one homophobic slur. It will also include general periotypical and modern sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and acephobia. So if any of that is something that you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this one. I wanted to briefly touch on our sources. There isn't one biography or a few biographies that I relied on heavily, so I don't need to go into any one Jane Austen scholar's personal quirks and biases, as we sometimes do. Um, I did want to note, because the biography part of this episode is actually quite short, uh, effectively what I did is I read a few introductions to Jane Austen's life and, like, critical editions of her work, like, introductions to her. And then I pulled, like, every biography I could find off the university shelf and went through the index for the bits that I was particularly interested in. So, you know, obviously... I don't have the most thorough understanding of every aspect of her life. I'm sure that'll be reflected in this to some extent, but I do know what like 12 different people have to say about her brief flirtations with men. So (laughs) just, just be aware that that is the background to the research that I have done. I think it's fine, but you know, I felt I should be transparent. I also wanted to mention a little bit about our primary sources for Jane's life. So Jane lived with her sister Cassandra for her entire life. And whenever they were apart, they would write to each other frequently These letters, as well as other letters within Jane's family, you know, some by her, some just referring to her and whatnot, are our richest source of information about Jane's life and about her inner world. But a lot of the letters between Jane and Cassandra in particular were destroyed or redacted by Cassandra after Jane's death. So those that survive were left to relatives who published them in 1884, and a few others have come to light since, leaving us with about 160 letters, but there are quite big gaps in that correspondence. And also four events in Jane's life that are not mentioned in the letters, you know, things that happened when she and Cassandra were together, for example, we just don't have a lot of information. Some things are known to us only from throwaway marks made significantly after the fact. Okay. It's very frustrating when you're like, you know the letters have been redacted or destroyed, but do we have any idea what letters were redacted or destroyed or why? I was just like, yep, some are definitely gone. So the ones that she redacted, like she would like cut bits out of, it it seems from context that it was mostly to do with her and Jane making unkind remarks about family members and things like that, or potentially talking about like illness and things about kind of their personal bodies and stuff like that. Okay. okay. Yeah. So it's not so much that we're losing out on like salacious materials. They were just like, this is a private thing we don't want yeah. the public to know about. Or like, this is going to be mean to Aunt Emily. <laughs> yeah. And okay. the surviving letters are sometimes like quite bitchy <laughs> for, you know, lack of a better word. So like, I can only imagine what the, <laughs> what the discarded ones were like. Um, oh. and they're quite fun to read. Jane Austen's life, as we'll get into soon like doesn't really read that exciting you know if you're just giving it an overview like this because like not much really happened to her to be honest but she does have a very lively and witty personality that comes through in the letters so they are really worth a read they were quite fun the bits of them that i read um i guess i will say like that is what most scholars suspect is in the redacted parts obviously for letters that it is completely destroyed like we don't know we can only hazard a guess but that's our our best guess how many women in this episode are going to be called jane is it just one was it like 50? There certainly are a bunch of repeated names within the Austin family and like their wider circle of acquaintances. But because I'm going to go over this quite briefly, I just decided that in almost all or all, I'm not quite sure, incidences of that, I just discarded those names. And you're just like, her aunt. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm not going to talk about anyone really outside of her immediate family. Well, at least Cassandra is quite a, yeah. not an unusual name, but it's not like Jane Ann or Mary. So, Jane was born on the 16th of December, 1775. 
She was the seventh of eight children. She had six brothers and one sister, Cassandra. Her mother was called Cassandra. <laughs> okay, yeah, great stuff. Okay. I think this is the only double name here. I'm obviously just going to refer to her mother as her mother or their mother or whatever. And her father was the Reverend George Austin, who was the rector of the Steventon Church, which was in Hampshire in the southeast of England. This is where Jane was born and where she grew up and spent much of her life. Both of her parents were from respectable backgrounds in the rural landowning classes, and her father, as a reverend, was a respected member of the community. So that's the kind of social circles that you're picturing. Okay. The Steventon Church was located on the Steventon Estate, which was the property of Thomas Knight, who was Jane's father's wealthy cousin. At the time, paid positions within the church were known as livings, and they were assigned by the landowner of that particular parish, and so it was Thomas Knight who assigned it to Jane's father, along with the nearby living of Dean. And to earn additional income, Jane's father also boarded and tutored local boys. It's kind of an ongoing thing in the biographies I read that they described Jane's family as being kind of fairly poor or from fairly modest circumstances and I kind of don't know to what degree I think that's fair to be honest yeah so it was mentioned for example that her father earned 200 pounds from the livings that Mm -hmm. he had and then obviously he also had income from boys and he also had like a small bit of land he could farm and one of the biographies I read mentioned that a skilled worker like a carpenter would earn 100 pounds a year so they're doing fine yeah, so to me, they're doing fine. I mean, but it's very much a sense you get in like this period of English history that you can be like a poor, wealthy person yeah. and that can cause you quite a lot of like financial stress. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're poor for the class that you're moving in and therefore it's a real struggle, even though there are many people yeah. who are struggling on a lot less than you yeah. or doing pretty well for themselves on a lot less yeah, than you. Like yeah, just like the upkeep of a estate and things mm. like that. Yeah, so it is more of that and that this is something that causes them difficulty at various times in their lives and I don't want to minimise that but also like these people are wealthier certainly than I grew up <laughs> yeah, by then. far and I didn't want to just kind of say as some biographers do that she came from quite a humble background or anything like that because that seems to be untrue to me. Yeah. For comparison like I mentioned a carpenter might earn a hundred pounds a year but also one of these kind of like relatively small time like rural land owners so they're still like much more upper class than someone like a carpenter, but not like the top tier of the aristocracy or mm. anything like that, would earn somewhere between one and five thousand pounds from their estates. Okay. So, you know, okay. for that kind of comparison, yeah, George isn't doing all that great. But he's doing like fine. He's doing fine, yeah. He does have eight kids as as well as yeah, which, <laughs> which is frankly a struggle no matter how much money yeah. you want. I mean I think if you've got a billion dollars you can have eight kids fine. I still think that you need to like they have like emotional and social needs that you can't spend on like, you know, that's true. If we're talking about emotional and social needs rather than like financial needs, it's a whole yeah. Question. Like eight yeah. kids is just always going to be tough. There are so many boys in this household, though. Yes, there, there are. There are six brothers, and then there's also whatever extra boys are in here being tutored. Yes. When Cassandra was sent to receive an education, Jane insisted on going too. Her mother commented that if Cassandra's head had been going to be cut off, Jane would have had hers cut off too. <laughs> Jane and Cassandra's niece, Anne, remembered their close relationship years later, saying their sisterly affection for each other could hardly be exceeded. This attachment was never interrupted or weakened. They lived in the same home and shared the same bedroom till separated by death. Good for them. I hope they were happy. So when you say Cassandra went to get an education, like, what does that mean? They weren't initially sent to a formal school. They were sent to board with a woman who educated girls and had some Uh kind of background in education or some kind of connection to a school that I can't quite remember. Uh, So, like, she was doing a similar thing to what... Jane's dad was doing. Yeah. But with girls. But with girls. And then they had to come back from that because I think there was some kind of epidemic Mm -hmm. in the place that they'd been sent. So they were like, let's get them back from there so they don't catch, you know, cholera or whatever and die. And then a little while later, they were sent to like a formal boarding school for like a year or so. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they would have learnt like how to read and write and some sort of like maybe some language, maybe some music, maybe a little bit of history, like that sort of stuff. Mm. needlework and things yeah whereas their father was tutoring boys in like in particular in latin because you had to know latin Mm. to go to oxford and you had to go to oxford or cambridge to go to 
you know, many things <laughs> to just yeah, to, to go to, to like upper class British life. Yeah, well, to <laughs> yeah. go into like the church, for, oh, England, yeah. for example, you had to have that kind of education. Mm-hmm. So after these two relatively short stints of formal education, Jane educated herself at home from her father's library. And she also began to write from an early age. We have three volumes of stories and poems from her teen years written between 1787 or 88 and 1792, which have been collectively published as Juvenilia. What kind of things did she write as a teen? Like, what are these stories about? I think they're quite similar, really, to what her books are going to be later, mm-hmm. where they're these sort of little social vignettes. They're quite short, they're quite witty and entertaining, they're quite lighthearted, and they're being written with her family's encouragement and specifically for their entertainment. Okay. So she reads them out within the family circle Mm -hmm. as a pastime for the family. In 1795, she wrote a novel, Eleanor and Marianne, and in 1796 she wrote another one called First Impressions. They would later be published in 1811 and 1813 respectively as Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. In 1797, her father actually sent First Impressions to a London publishing house, which rejected it. But Jane continued to write. She revised Eleanor and Marianne and by 1799 had begun a novel called Susan, which would eventually be published posthumously as Northanger Abbey. In 1801, her father retired and his parishes passed to his eldest son, James, and he moved to the popular retirement location of Bath with his wife and daughters. Her father died suddenly in January of 1805, and Jane, Cassandra, and their mother continued to live in Bath, although they moved to cheaper lodgings, subsisting on their mother's private income, which was relatively small, and money from some of Jane's brothers. Where did she get this private income? I don't know. She's obviously not working. Yeah. So I assume it's some kind of, you know, inheritance thing where she gets a certain amount of money because of... I don't know, rich people stuff. Because of rich people stuff. (laughs) Because of like a clause in in some kind of inheritance, you know, will or something like that, I would imagine. The Austin's second son, Edward, had been adopted as the heir of Thomas Knight, the son of the Thomas Knight who had given their father the local church livings. And in 1808, Edward invited them to live in Chawton Cottage on the estate near to where Jane had grown up. And obviously they very enthusiastically accepted this. Biographers generally describe their lives there as being modest but comfortable, but I did want to note, as we've sort of already said regarding their income, that Cottage is a bit of a misnomer for this house. (laughs) It is like a two-story house. It's certainly bigger than any house I've ever lived in. It's currently the Jane Austen Museum, Uh uh, and you can actually do like quite a nice online tour of it. So I I went and I looked around. What is not included in that, and I assume that you can't go into, are a bunch of like outbuildings that I assume were used for like the servants' lodgings and things like that. Mm -hmm. So kind of all of that combined maybe be like, well, it's not really a cottage, I would say. (laughs) I Um, mean, yeah, anytime someone has live-in servants, like... Yeah. So, you know, I just wanted to clarify that. But nevertheless, still, for their station in life, this is a relatively modest home. Yeah. While she was living in Bath, Jane didn't write very much, but at Chawton she began to write more frequently again. She revised Eleanor and Marianne, changed the title to Sense and Sensibility, and published it in 1811, and then did likewise with First Impressions to Pride and Prejudice, which was published in 1813. She then followed up with Mansfield Park in 1814 and Emma in 1816. Her novels were quite well received in her lifetime. It's not one of those circumstances where someone isn't, you know, appreciated until years after their death or anything like that. They were thought of quite well. Some of them sold out. They brought her like a you know, modest amount of money. Good for her. Yeah. Did people know it was her writing them at the time or did she do it under a pseudonym? Neither. Okay. So the first one was published something like, you know, by a lady. So mm. it was known that it was a woman who had written it, but it wasn't initially clear who it was. And then when the second one was published, it was, you know, by the author of Sense and Sensibility, but it still wasn't clear who it was. And then somewhere around the third or fourth one, it was revealed that it was Jane Austen. Okay. And there's some quite delightful letters about her family finding out that <laughs> they have this relative who's this, you know, relatively popular author. One of her, I think her nephews wrote her like a little poem about how he was so surprised and proud to find out that his auntie was a novelist. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite cute, yeah. In 1816, Jane became unwell with what is today believed to have been Addison's disease, an infection of the glands below the kidneys, but this wasn't understood at the time. In May of 1817, Jane moved to Winchester to be near her doctor, and she passed away there on the 18th of July at the age of 41. That's very young. It is very young, yeah. And obviously, with how her writing was going, she would have written 
many mm. more books had yeah. she lived a long life. As has, I'm sure, been apparent to some degree throughout this little biography, Jane had been quite close to and dear to her extended family and was especially close to her sister, Cassandra, who wrote, I've lost a treasure, such a sister, such a friend as never can have been surpassed. She was the son of my life, the gilder of every pleasure, the soother of every sorrow. I had not a thought concealed from her, and it is as if I had lost a part of myself. Northanger Abbey and Persuasion were published after her death in 1818, and after that point her works were briefly out of print until 1833 when new editions were printed, and they've of course received many editions since. So Jane never married, but she did have a few brief involvements with men in her life, which we'll go through now. Around Christmas time in 1795, so she's about 20, a man named Tom Lafroy came to Steventon. He was 19 years old and the nephew of the Reverend George Lafroy, whose rectory was at Ash, a few miles north of Steventon. On the 9th of January 1796, Jane wrote to her sister a letter about a ball that she and Tom had both attended, where it's clear that they had danced and talked together more than was conventional. So is Tom one of these boys that our dad's tutoring? No. He's just visiting the house. He's just a guy. He's not visiting their house. He's visiting the The town. Oh, okay. And he has family from the nearby area. Okay, So there's not any more direct connection between that. It's just they are at social occasions together. Mm -hmm. She wrote, You scold me so much in the nice long letter which I have at this moment received from you that I'm almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. (laughs) Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) A few days later she wrote The day is come on which I am to flirt my last with Tom Lafroy And when you receive this it will be over My tears flow at the melancholy idea Biographers have made various suggestions For why this relationship did not end in an engagement Generally financial reasons It definitely wasn't an opportune time for Tom Lafroy to get married He had just finished a degree And was about to begin three years of legal studies in London It's hard to tell with the tone of Joan's letter But because she often is quite humorous in her letters It certainly seems to me that she could have been not particularly serious when she has that statement about like, oh, I'm going to, you know, cry about Tom leaving. Yeah. Um, the way she says like the day has come for me to flirt my loss. Like that yeah. sounds very lighthearted. Like that was a fun dalliance. That's over now. I'm a bit sad. It's not like I'm heartbroken from something that I thought would be the rest of my life. Yeah. I think it's very possible to read it as just a brief, enjoyable flirtation that they both had fun with, but not something that either of them necessarily expected to end in an engagement anyway. Mm, yeah. Even if they had wanted it to. Tom did get married in 1797 to a different woman, obviously. And in his old age, he told his nephew that he had once been in love with Jane Austen, but that it had been a boyish love, which I think supports Mm -hmm. that as well. The Austens spent the summer of 1801 by the sea. So this is when Jane and her sister and her parents are living in Bath. They go on a little seaside holiday. The family became acquainted with two brothers, the younger of which fell in love with Jane and who was well thought of by both sisters. They resolved that they would see each other soon. And it seems like there's an understanding that this relationship will continue and that maybe he was going to eventually propose to her, but he suddenly died before they could see each other again. We don't know very much about this. It's something that was not recorded at the time in Mm -hmm. any letters or anything that survived to us at least, but we know about it through like secondhand accounts from later within the family. Mm -hmm. The family kind of recorded what they knew about Jane when they realized that she was a big deal after she'd passed away. And this is one of the things that was recorded, but yet we don't know very much about it. In 1802, Jane and Cassandra were visiting friends, Catherine and Alethea Biggs, and one evening whilst they were at their home, Catherine and Alethea's brother Harris Bigwither proposed to Jane. <laughs> Sorry, wait, but they're called Biggs, but he's called Bigwither? I don't know Bigwither. why that is. That's just the case. <laughs> we won't question Harris Bigwither is not consequential, and I refuse <laughs> to do genealogical research to him. British names are just so funny. Yeah, I knew you were going to ask this. I should have just left out Catherine and Alethea's surname. <laughs> Jane accepted Harris's proposal, oh. but the next morning she... She was like, oh, I'll be called Big with for the rest of my life. I don't know. <laughs> the next morning she had obviously reconsidered during the night and she turned him down. Jane and Cassandra fled from the Big Wither household that morning to their brother's house, which was relatively close by, and had him escort them back to Bath. Because it was just too awkward that she... too awkward. Like, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's often understood that Jane accepted because of material concerns and then rejected him because of personal ones, but 
this is ultimately just speculation. And then the thing that we have the least information about perhaps is that in 1808, Edward Bridges, the brother of her sister-in-law, proposed and she rejected him. Okay. So that could have meant absolutely nothing to her, perhaps. It's generally treated as of like very little emotional consequence Mm. to her by the biographies. But again, like we don't really know that much about it. So that's kind of the sum total of what we know about Jane's love life. And people are really quite obsessed with this topic. Helen Lefroy, who is related to Tom Lefroy, mm-hmm. uh, in her short biography of Jane includes a chapter entitled Why Did Jane Austen Not Marry? And this is notable because her biography is only like 100 pages long. When did she write this biography? Like in the 2010s. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like recently? Yes. I just wasn't sure because she related to him. I was like, is this like his oh, niece or <laughs> No, no. I don't think that you could write that at the time. Yes, yeah, sorry. That was unclear. <laughs> I'm not sure if she's a descendant of him and that I don't think she's from his direct line, but she's like a descendant of his sister or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is notable, I think, because Helen's biography is only about 100 pages long. Mm. So everything that she's including here is the bare bones of information that we need about Jane Austen. And she thinks that it's worthwhile to spend a whole chapter on this question of why Jane didn't marry. It it gives an indication of how prominent a question this is to Austen scholars. I can kind of see why when what she is known for is writing like particularly well-regarded romance novels, essentially, that people look and they're like, but where did she learn this? <laughs> the way that people always want women writers' work or queer writers' work to be autobiographical in some way. People do that thing where they see something that happens in their fiction and they're like, so where is that in her life? Yeah, part of it definitely does come from the fact that her biographers are so baffled by her spinsterhood given the content of her books. Um, and they will treat this as kind of like the great unsolved question of her life. How could someone have written Pride and Prejudice but not have had a Mr. Darcy, essentially? <laughs> and I think it's also to some degree a fair question because marriage was such an important economic question mm. for women at the time. Mm. So it's a reasonable question to ask, but the kind of degree to which biographers do treat it as something that just fundamentally does not make sense. You know, a broken part of the story of Jane Austen that we need to desperately try and find an answer to is a little bit ridiculous, depending on the biographer. It also highlights the fact that because we don't have a lot of information about her life, people will try to really fill in the gaps with her fiction, as you've correctly guessed. And yeah, like while I think that's kind of understandable to an extent, you do get these extremes where some biographers will, for example, speculate that Jane remained distraught about Tom Lefroy or the unnamed seaside admirer for years or even for the rest of her life. And some of them credit these instances for her work, you know, that, you know, Jane Austen could not have written Pride and Prejudice if she hadn't had that flirtation with Tom Lefroy, which I think is just ridiculous. That's both incredibly simplistic and incredibly sexist. Yes. And yeah, yeah. It's just bad scholarship. It is. It doesn't really seem to me that there's much of a mystery here at all. You know, it seems likely that Jane would have been happy to marry if the right man had come along, but he didn't. I mean, yeah, like it seems possible that she could have married that guy from the seaside had he not died, for example. Yeah. Writing to her niece, who was considering whether or not to marry an admirer, Jane wrote, anything is to be preferred or endured rather than marrying without affection. Mm. Jane lived a happy and fulfilling life. She was a deaf writer of romance and she never married. Yeah. These things can yeah. coexist. Yeah. And like the way she said that, that's just obvious that what she values is a marriage with, you know, the right man who she loves. Yeah. And that engagement that she turned down, for example, or those two engagements that she turned down, she obviously just didn't feel that was that man. Yeah, that seems fair. I mean, I think people just like, it's kind of acephobic of them and aerophobic of mm. them, but people wildly overestimate the amount to which romantic affection is like a completely unique experience of love. It's like, you can use your experiences of friendship to inform your fiction about romance, and that's not going to show in your romance. Mm. Mm. And I also think, like, on a slightly different note, but very similar to what you've just said, that we've seen that Jane has a very close and big family, and she also has quite a good network of friends. And so possibly because she and her mother and her sister get both emotional and clearly financial support from her brothers from the wider family and whatnot, like, I think it's very possible that a woman in that circumstance would feel less of a need to marry than a woman who lacked those things a bit more anyway. Yeah. So you'll notice that Jane has not yet been a lesbian. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious about this because yes. I've never actually heard the rumour that Jane Austen was queer in the first place. 
Yeah, I mean, as we'll see, there is very little to discuss here. Okay. The reason this was actually brought to our attention, someone recommended this to us, I don't have their name in front of me, is because of the publication of a book called Jane Austen at Home by a woman named Lucy Worsley. In her book, Worsley notes that Jane almost certainly never had sex with a man, as to do so out of marriage would have been very risky, which okay, seems plausible. I concur with. She goes on to say, did Jane ever have lesbian sex? Here the stakes would have been much lower. Yes, it was frowned on by society, but this was an age where women very often shared beds and Jane herself frequently records sleeping with a female friend. People were much less worried about lesbian sex in general. It wasn't pursued in the law courts or policed against by the matrons of polite society. This was not the least because many of them didn't quite believe that it was even possible. So that door of possibility may remain ajar, but only by the very tiniest crack and only in the absence of evidence either way. All right, that seems like a reasonable statement. Yeah, I actually think it's quite good that Worsley included this, even though there isn't really any evidence there, because it kind of does away with the heteronormativity Mm. of of not even having sex with anyone but a man be on the table. Like, I think being like, well, did she have lesbian sex? There's not really any evidence, but she could have, is quite a healthy way to address that person. Yeah, Yeah, no, I agree with that. And honestly, what evidence would there be that she had lesbian sex? Like... She's unlikely to write that down and have that reach us in the modern day. We just wouldn't know. Yeah. I mean, that's why Endless is such a big deal, right? Yeah. 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 It's very similar, but she did write it down <laughs> at length. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the big difference is that Jane's writings are to her sister, whereas Anne Lister's writings are in private to herself. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And also, as we've said, like, Jane's writings were, like censored after her death yeah i guess she could have wrote to cassandra and be like what's up Cass? had some banging lesbian sex last night anyway here's some muslin i bought <laughs> yeah. yeah but like probably not yeah so yeah we all seem to agree that Worsley's statement is fairly reasonable but it was reported in the press as a claim that jane austen was a lesbian for example pink news published an article on the 29th of may 2017 entitled jane austen frequently slept with a female friend and may have had lesbian sex the article reads the author of pride and prejudice and sense and sensibility never married and according to biographer Lucy Worsley the only sex she would have had was with a woman if you read the article carefully you can see that Worsley didn't say that and Pink News isn't really claiming that she had sex with a woman either but it's written in this way to suggest more than she actually said essentially just for sensationalism yeah like I think they've kind of made it so they're not lying because they're like slept with women and could have had lesbian sex but at a glance oh Jane Austen frequently slept with women means Jane Austen frequently had lesbian sex yeah like I see definitely how you see that headline and you're like slept with women lesbian sex Jane Austen gotcha I've got it yeah and like I'm not going to pretend that I never read a headline and then think I know what's in the article. Absolutely. But even the article itself like, isn't much better than the headline in terms of how it hedges its bets a bit. So, mm. yeah. This is, if you have heard in the last five years ago, the suggestion that Jane Austen was actually a lesbian, probably where that comes from. Okay. And ultimately, it's clear that there is nothing to this at all. Yeah. With that... <laughs> <laughs> So we could conclude the episode here that despite Jane Austen's apparent lack of queerness, this isn't where the story ends, and I decided to drag this out for another half an hour or so. <laughs> All right, cool. So Susan Celia Greenfield, in a 2021 article, Queer Austen in Northanger Abbey, discusses the emergence of queer Austen as a recognised field within Austen studies, evoking David Halperin's definition of queer, that it acquires its meaning from its oppositional relation to the norm. Queer is by definition whatever is at odds with the normal, the legitimate, and the dominant, and uses that as her starting point to kind of talk about queer Austen. I don't know exactly what queer Austen's going to be, but I feel like that definition of queer is too broad, and that's kind of the definition of queer that leads us to conversations where people say, you know... Working from home is queering the workplace. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Where it has nothing to do with, like, gender and sexuality. Yeah, look, it's an ongoing tension I feel with the use of the word where it needs to be so broad as to be able to encompass a lot of things that modern sexuality and gender labels can't but also like how do you do that in a way that then doesn't render it essentially a meaningless term where you can say yeah working from home queers labor practices and stuff like that (laughs) and the obvious example of this is that article that came out in like 2014 or whenever it was that was like drones queer war right (laughs) yeah that's right that's right yeah like To sort of go off on a tangent that maybe you'll address or maybe you won't. I can fully see how 
if you were like an ace or an aromantic person, you would identify fairly strongly with somebody who is like well known in kind of a romance fiction context, but in her life is known to have turned down several proposals. Mm. Just because I know a lot of people in that kind of boat where they're like, I've always loved romance fiction. I inhale fan fiction, but I don't want that in my real life at all. So I can see how you would look at Jane Austen's life and be like, I identify with that as a queer person. And I love that that's what I'm getting from her life, you know? Yeah, and I think that that sort of thing is a perfectly reasonable queer reading of Jane Austen. Like, yeah. I, I'm not going to include, like, ace people identifying with Jane Austen into, like, this is, like, a nonsense grab bag of queerness, nah, or anything <laughs> like that. Like, I think that that does make sense, and that is certainly some of what gets discussed in queer Austen studies, both mm-hmm. in talking about Jane herself and in talking about readings of her books. I think it is a bit disappointing. Like, obviously that lesbianism headline was very sensitive sensationalistic but it is disappointing from the perspective of like ace or arrow history that like they're just never gonna get that headline like you could easily have taken that article and been like oh we've talked about how jane austen never had sex with a man and may or may not have had sex with a woman we don't know possibly jane austen was ace you're just never getting that headline you're never getting that kind of media discussion yeah we will come back to actually in a moment how i feel like there are further really obvious times to bring up kind of asexuality and in, in how people have talked about jane austen but people don't they kind of elide it into a general conversation about queerness or relate it to lesbianism in it isn't unconvincing but i think you know it is a shame that asexuality is not discussed more here but first i need to take you on a little bit of a ride (laughs) all right (laughs) all right a journey so in 1989 the modern language association convention listed in its program a paper by eve kosovsky sedgwick entitled jane austen and the masturbating girl This was responded to by a conservative social commentator, Roger Kimball, in his book Tenured Radicals as evidence of left-wing extremism in academia. Oh, God, women masturbate left-wing extremism. (laughs) Uh, Kimball's critique was restricted to the title. He had not seen the presentation or read the ensuing article. So he really literally was just like, wow, it's left-wing extremism. We're talking about women masturbating. Yeah, I mean, he in the book goes on this kind of rant about how, like, oh, there's, like, gay studies and African-American studies studies and I don't know disability studies and whatever this day like he's you know yeah yeah. there's nothing sympathetic in his work and there's no point he makes that's really worth bringing up uh, any more than we already have but he took the title which again is the full thing that he's critiquing and responding to as and it's subsequently been referred to by others and Sedgwick has called it an index for depravity in academe (laughs) I hope he's not on Twitter today he's dead good I didn't mean good because, like, I want this man to die. I just meant good because he's no longer engaging in the discourse. (laughs) For those who actually read the article that ended up being published, it was quite influential. As Greenfield describes, in it, Cedric attends to the sister heroine's non-heteronormative desires and sense and sensibility. She describes the passion and perturbation of Eleanor and Marianne Dashwood's love for each other, suggests that the erotic axis of the novel is most obviously the unwavering but difficult love of Eleanor for Marianne, and outlines the many insinuations that Marianne is a masturbator, which was, in Austen's time, a long-execrated form of sexuality. There is also this thing in academia where they're committed sometimes to saying erotic when they simply don't mean erotic in the, like, vernacular sense. Yes. Would you like a further example of that? I would. I would love one. I did spend a while, as we'll see with this next example, kind of sitting and being like, what does erotic mean? And I think, you know, we can maybe try and answer that question together in a moment. Okay. So Terry Castle's 1995 review of an edition of Jane Austen's Letters, published in the London Review of Books, had quite a similar focus on the relationship between sisters, in this case not between sisters within Jane's work, but between Jane and Cassandra. The review was titled Sister Sister by Castle, but subtitled Was Jane Austen Gay Without Castle's Knowledge? And it was met with a media storm from readers who understood that it claimed that Jane had had sex with her sister. Okay. Castle felt the need to respond and stated that She had nowhere claimed that the sisters had sex and concurred with the opinion that Jane likely never had sex with anyone. She further said, I stand by what I did say in the piece, however, that Austen's relationship with Cassandra was unquestionably the most important emotional relationship of her life, that she lived with her sister on terms of considerable physical intimacy, and that the relationship, I believe, had its unconscious homoerotic dimensions. What does that mean? As well as saying, I take it as a psychological given, obviously, that parental and sibling attachments have an erotic dimension, indeed provide the basic models for all of our subsequent affective attachments. Is that a psychological given? 
Speaking as somebody who's in the room with their sister right now, I would like to strongly refute that claim. <laughs> that is not a psychological yeah, given. I, I guess I should apologize. <laughs> Bringing us here today. Here we today. have lived experience of sisterhood, and I think this is important. <laughs> I, I did kind of ambush you with this weird erotic <laughs> argument, and I am sorry. Can I, I mean, you did tell us that hypothetical incest was going to come up, and I was like, I don't know, we'll get to that when we get to that, and we yeah. sure have got to it. Can I bring supernatural fanfiction into this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> you actually, we had a good chat about this once. Carry on. As right. you know. Carry uh, on my way with someone. <laughs> <laughs> I've never even seen supernatural. I think you have. You watched some episodes of yeah. me like years ago. I've, I've seen, like, seen like five seasons. So I've, I've, seen, like, I've seen five episodes. Four and a quarter All seasons right. or something. I'm, so I'm we're kind of dinking on myself by revealing a certain amount of supernatural knowledge, so I can yeah. be the expert if you need any. <laughs> yeah. uh, Alice, please. What I was going to say is I feel like supernatural fanfiction and the Wincest ship is probably the most like pertinent example I've seen of this in the modern day, but I feel like people often look at relationships and in this case specifically sibling relationships that are very close and any close relationship they go oh well the closest possible relationship is a romantic and sexual relationship therefore any close relationship it gets to a point of closeness where I'm going to assume it's a romantic and sexual relationship Yeah. the reason that I brought up Supernatural is because I've seen people kind of make this specific argument looking at you know why do I ship this and they pull out all these examples of here's when these people have shown that they're really close they really love each other they really care for each other they're really important to each other therefore it's romantic and sexual as yeah. though there's no other options for two people who are close particularly when we're talking about siblings right? yeah. there's a rather obvious other yeah. <laughs> reason why they might be close there and that's called being siblings that's called being siblings <laughs> yeah i fully remember being on tumblr in like 2013 and you'd see these gift sets which were like they're so in love and it's like dean saying sammy i'd die for you or something and you're like yeah that's his, that's his family that's his only family <laughs> It really comes back around to that, like, allonormative social thing mm-hmm. where people imagine all of relationships on a spectrum of intensity th- that goes from acquaintance to yeah. romantic and sexual. Literally all possible human relationships, which is just not how that is. Anyway, Jane Austen and her sister were sisters. Yes. <laughs> carry on, carry on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to quote the title of Castle's article, Sister. Sister. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So to talk a little bit about Castle's article rather than just the reactions to it for a moment, to be clear and to be fair to her, she does not say they had sex. That is Mm. true. But she does write about their relationship as ambiguously erotic in a way that I struggle to understand or agree with. I feel like this is really just going to further demonstrate what we've already said, but like I might as well include some examples from the actual article. So she says, for example, Austen wants more than anything to make her older sister laugh. As in her novels, she uses first lines flirtatiously like comic bait to catch Cassandra in webs of mock heroic invention from 1801. So this is a quote from a letter from Jane. Expect a most agreeable letter, for not being overburdened with subject, having nothing at all to say, I shall have no check to my genius from beginning to end. (laughs) I just don't think that joking is inherently flirtatious. I agree. I guess the first thing I would say is that is a good example of what I mentioned earlier about Jane's personality really coming through in letters. She really is quite funny. There's another quote that I don't have in front of me, so I'm going to misquote it slightly inevitably, but it goes something like, I won't say that your mulberry trees are dead, but they're certainly not alive. <laughs> you know, it's just very funny. I enjoyed reading them. A very relatable experience of being left in charge of your housemate's plants. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, it was this thing where Castle would kind of say, like, you know, there is clear flirtation, there's clear eroticism, and then just give a quote in which I was left to kind of say, is there? Yeah, you're looking at it and you're like, I would text that to a casual friend. Yeah. <laughs> Castle also makes a lot of the sometimes lengthy descriptions of clothing in the letters, understanding a letter that contains a lengthy description of a dress being made for Jane and in which Jane expresses desire for Cassandra to see the dress as implying a desire for Cassandra to see Jane's body. The example I'm thinking of is when I was in year 12 and we were all buying our formal dresses, which yep. is like your prom if you're American. And, like, you'd be like, oh, I got my dress yesterday. And your friends would be like, well, what is it? And they would, like, demand a, like, 10-minute detailed description of every aspect of the dress. And that's not erotic. That's just how women talk about clothes. Yeah. I mean, I I will read you kind of the last quote, which I think sort of responds 
fairly precisely to what mm. you're saying and then you can you know disagree with it if you yeah. want yeah. but so castle says such passages remind us strikingly of how important a role clothes have played in the subliminal fetish life of women how much time women spend looking at one another dressing one another and engaging in elaborate and mutually pleasurable grooming behavior Austin and Cassandra were hardly exempt. Indeed, the conventions of early 19th century female sociability and body intimacy may have provided the necessary screen behind which both women acted out unconscious narcissistic or homoerotic imperatives. So I think what Castle would say about your example there is that that was on some level erotic. I think that can be homoerotic. Like, if you were in a situation where, like, you know, you had a crush on your friend and you made them describe in great detail what they were going to wear and how it was going to look on them and you said, I can't wait to see you in that dress, that's got a lot of homoerotic undertones. But it can just as easily be a platonic chat about what you're going to wear that has no homoeroticism. Like, I think there's just a lot of ways to interpret the conversations Jane is having, and I definitely would not assume the erotic interpretation. Yeah, and I think it is worth making clear that Castle is not claiming that these are spaces in which eroticism can occur, but that there is a certain level of eroticism inherent to it. Yeah. Uh, So she said, for example, in one of her responses to this, because it blew up and a lot of people interviewed her about this article, (laughs) which is kind of fun, like we don't often get that kind of dissection of an academic article, that a lot of people said in response to it, that's just normal, that's just how women are, and she Mm. said, that's my point, you know, that this is a normalized part of contemporary female socialization and that she understands that to be a level of eroticism to that. I feel like we're running into a thing here, which is just like a vast social problem that we have in a patriarchal society mm-hmm. where the existence of women and the existence of femininity are taken as kind of inherently sexual. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's essentially created this situation where to her mind, there is no way for a woman to show interest in another woman. That isn't erotic. Mm. There's no way out. You're joking with her. You're having fun with her. Well, you're flirting with her. Okay. You're interested in what she's going to wear. Well, you're interested in her body then. She's kind of just created this scenario where every interaction that a woman has is erotic. Mm. And I just think we need to throw that out. Yeah. Yeah. Like in this world that, you know, she's created, (laughs) in this interpretation of the world, can a woman's body exist And be perceived and be discussed in a non-sexual way, in a non-erotic way. Because it seems like no. Mm -hmm. And that's a very problematic way to understand women's lives, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No thanks. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would like to let you guys have the last word on this as the two women and the two sisters in the room. We can move along now. (laughs) So in her responses to this backlash, one of the things that Castle highlighted, which I think was a fair comment, was the broad discomfort that many people clearly felt the idea of talking about Jane Austen in connection to sexuality at all. Mm -hmm. She said, People have reacted as though I'd desecrated the temple or something. Many people still consider it a terrible slur if you suggest that a person like Jane Austen might have had homosexual feelings. Mm Mm-hmm. Castle also stated that people tend to view her as asexual and not having any sort of sensual life at all. And this is reflected in the response of B.C. Southam to Castle's essay in which he remarks, discussions of Jane Austen's sexuality are notable for their rarity, largely one suspects because they have so little to do with the way we read the novels. However, in 1924, literary scholar George Sampson criticized her work by saying, in her world, there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage, but just the make-believe mating of dolls. Jane Austen is abnormal because her characters have no sex at all. Likewise, Charlotte Bronte hated Jane Austen's work because it lacked, quote, what throbs fast, full though hidden, what the blood rushes through. And she concluded the letter that she wrote this in saying, the passions are perfectly unknown to her. So some people clearly do prefer to think of Jane and sexuality as just entirely separate things that never touched each other, but I think it's worth pointing out that Jane's perceived asexuality has been another way in which her sexuality has been viewed as inappropriate or Mm. uncomfortable for Mm. people as well, which I think comes back to discussions that you raised at the beginning of this about potential identification with Jane by Ace or Arrow readers. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, it would be doing it a disservice to say that people are really on board with the idea of Jane Austen being asexual. No, they're not. Hmm. I think there are, like, two ways to talk about, like, Jane being asexual. And one is, like, Jane might be asexual as, like, kind of related to the modern queer identity, and Mm. that's, like, an interesting way to understand Jane. And the other is a much more prudish, like, 
it's just kind of inappropriate to talk about Jane Austen and sex. We mm-hmm. have to divorce our discussions of yeah. Jane Austen and sex, which is not very productive and just stops us like yeah. trying to fully understand her life. And I guess the latter one doesn't actually really say anything about Jane herself. Mm. Like it refuses to consider the possibility of her sexuality. Yeah. It doesn't actually make an argument that she didn't experience sexual attraction because even that would probably be talking about sex and Jane Austen a bit too much for such people. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're very right. And I think that it is possible to kind of conflate those two things in mm. scholarship. And I think it does a disservice to the ace community to do so. Yeah. And I think it's actually quite interesting to note the ways in which discomfort with Jane's sexuality by those who perceive her to have potentially been attracted to women and those who consider her to have potentially been asexual quite mirror each other and cannot neatly be separated Mm. uh, as a way of looking at historical ace phobia. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's very often the case Mm. with like lesbophobia and ace phobia is that like, it's the same fear of a woman with no interest in men. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And also, like, I think the fact that those two things often come out of, like, similar conversations and the same, like, discussion of separating women's sexuality from men does also mean that, like, discussions about asexuality and ace history can get subsumed into discussions about lesbian history and people Mm -hmm. go, oh, well, she constructed her sexuality separate to men, therefore it must have been in relation to women and fail to consider another option. Yeah, which is difficult because obviously you don't want to, you know – not consider the lesbian option. Mm. You don't want to do disservice to the lesbian community. But I feel like, yeah, it often is the case that instead disservice is done to the ace community. And, you know, it's worth explicitly pointing these things out when we come across them to try and avoid falling into that trap ourselves. Yeah. And I think that example you gave of Wardsley earlier on about how she, like, acknowledged that there was a lesbian option for Jane. Yeah. Even though there wasn't evidence, she was kind of like, here's how that could have been. Yeah. You know, the way to deal with, like, this situation is just to similarly acknowledge an ace option. Yeah. I will briefly touch on the fact that there have been queer readings of Jane Austen's works. I didn't want to go into too much detail about this because, like, I didn't give you guys a signed reading for this. (laughs) Uh, So I'm just going to kind of breeze through a few. Obviously, we've already talked about this reading of Eleanor and Marianne's sisterly relationship as queer, but probably the book that is most commonly given a queer reading is Emma, specifically of Emma Woodhouse's relationship with Harriet Smith. Austen scholar Barrett Tandon said to The Guardian, it's a question of how you interpret those friendships. It's hard to unpick those moments where Emma's interest in Harriet is because she's something to accessorize from those moments where it is somehow erotically proprietorial. And Celia Greenfield, who we've mentioned already, also gives a lengthy reading of the queerness of Northanger Abbey, which is a satire of the Gothic novel, and in particular explores how Gothic literature is often understood as an inherently or an explicitly queer genre mm-hmm. in and of itself. So there's certainly, if you want to do queer Austen, certainly plenty of ways to do it that are not directly related to Jane. Devoni Lusa chooses to instead focus on queer performance history of Austen's work. So since the Victorian era, Austen's work has been performed in a variety of ways that interact with traditional gender and sexuality norms in various ways, some more interesting (laughs) and some more productive than others. Okay. Uh, So an early form of adaptation of Austen's work was in a piece called The Voluble Lady, a reading of the spinster Miss Bates speech in Emma, which began to appear in comic routines read by male performers. Contemporary English newspapers report on the enthusiastic responses to this. So in 1861, for example, Mr. H. Joyner performed it and was met with an echo of laughter and rapturous applause. And the Reverend H. Ray Hill played Miss Bates in 1865 to roars of laughter. Are these Um, men playing Miss Bates, like, in drag? Is this, like, a comic, like, man dressed as woman situation? I don't actually know if clothing is involved or not. I just know that the speech, obviously, is being given in a kind of, like, feminine Mm. register in a way that is seen as comedic. Yeah. And these performances would have also included mock flirtation with men, as Miss Bates mock protested taking the arm of Frank Churchill and enjoyed sitting by him at dinner and things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't have any kind of, like, analysis of most of these that have written down. I was going to tell them to okay, So yeah. if you want to say anything, like, I feel with that, you know, it's sexist, yeah. it's homophobic, it's transphobic. Yeah. That's kind of all that we need to That's all we kind know of this. clear. I can't say anything about, like, those men's personal feelings about mm-hmm. assuming a, like, feminine persona for Mm -hmm. this performance but in terms of what the performance is saying I feel like that's fairly clear yeah a few decades later it became common for amateur all-female casts to put on adaptations of Jane Austen's work particularly Pride and Prejudice so the first known Mr. Darcy to be acted on stage was actually played by a woman oh cool which is pretty cool and it was in an amateur production put on at Wellesley College in 1899 which had an all-female cast and we have photos of this all-female cast with those playing male characters you know dressed in men's clothes and I'd like holding hands with or kind of you know acting 
flirtatiously towards the female love interest in the cast. So that's quite fun. Yeah. Mm. In 1932, the first biographical play about Jane Austen debuted in New York. It was called Dear Jane, and at the end of it, Jane rejects her suitors and instead runs off with Cassandra in what Lucy calls a quasi-elopement. These parts were played respectively by actresses Josephine Hutchinson and Eva Lagayen, who were a couple at the time and had been outed as such in the newspapers. The play, according to Lusa, offered a first chance to act out private devotion to each other as adult characters on the public stage. That's kind of cool. Like, you know, it's unfortunate that they brought the sister incest into it, but it's kind of of cool that, like, as a lesbian couple, they kind of got to act out, like, rejecting men and eloping together. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, like, that particular situation, I can see why to them they were like, this is a queer performance Mm. that we're putting on. Yeah. Um, In a different way to whatever Castle was talking about. More recent adaptations have continued to reflect social norms surrounding sexuality and gender. So the movie Clueless. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know that Clueless was a Jane Austen adaptation. Yeah. So Clueless came out in 1996 and it's an adaptation, although a fairly loose adaptation of Emma. And in it, it has Cher Horowitz attempting to seduce Christian, who is the film's analogue of Frank Churchill. In the novel, Frank was secretly engaged, but Christian is instead secretly gay. Okay. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. So Christian's homosexuality serves this dual purpose of updating a plot that no longer makes sense in this new setting. Obviously, this boy isn't going to be secretly married or secretly engaged and catering to late 1990s homophobic humor. Yeah. yeah. Bridget Jones's Diary, which is an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Similar- oh, I guess it is. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and it similarly engages with queerness as both like adaptational choice and punchline in its depiction of Daniel Cleaver, which is the film's analog for George Wickham. In the book, Wickham repeatedly seduces and exploits young women. And in the movie, Daniel Cleaver is revealed to be a womanizer and there's a negative comparison made between his love life and Bridget's at the end of the film, which is capped off in a credit scene in which his date reveals that she has a deep voice and is called Alan. I see. Why did they not just make him um, exploitative womanizer? I don't know. Those do still exist. Because trans women are funny. Like, that's... That's the whole joke. Yeah, that's that's a joke. That's a bad joke. It is a bad joke, yeah. In 2016, Curtis Sittenfeld published a book called Eligible, which is a modern retelling of Pride and Prejudice, in which Liz, instead of Elizabeth, is a magazine writer, Jane is a yoga instructor, so on and so forth. Sittenfeld also runs into this problem of how to adapt Wickham, in particular his relationship with Lydia, one of the Bennett sisters, because relationships before marriage are not really convincing reasons for social ruin inherently in the modern day. Mm. And the solution that Sittenfeld comes to is that Hamilton Ryan, the book's version of Wickham, is a transgender man. And that's it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so bad. That well, just ha- doesn't I- seem that hard to me. To translate exploitative womanizer ruins the reputation of young girl to the modern day. That happens constantly. Yeah, it's weird how the thing they're apparently struggling to adapt and heaping the transphobia and homophobia on is one of the things that is just most like... That's like so translatable. Translatable, like- yeah. Like, bad men ruin women's lives. It still happens. It still happens, yeah. So, in the novel, Mr. Darcy saves the day by essentially bribing Wickham to marry Lydia. And in Eligible, Darcy is a neurosurgeon. Um, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. That's That seems like a job he could have. A hot, eligible profession, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he steps in by explaining to the upset Mrs. Bennet that being trans is a birth defect. What? <laughs> what year was this book written? 2016. That's not really acceptable. No. He says to Liz after the fact, I'm afraid the birth defect explanation isn't politically correct. But Do I was- you mean isn't? Correct? Just straight correct, Darcy? Let Mr. Darcy finish. <laughs> Let Dr. Darcy finish. <laughs> oh, man. But I was trying to find terms that would be understandable to someone of her generation. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> I hate the fact that in having him say that, they've tried to present themselves as being, like, progressive and, like, you know, trans-friendly. Like, oh, I was just putting this in terms that someone older than me would understand. Like, you've written this transphobic book. Yeah. I hope no one's upset by the fact that I'm laughing at all of this. Obviously, this is horrible. I also just find it very funny that someone <laughs> had the goal to do this. I'm just still so baffled that they looked at Wickham and they were like, this is impossible to translate without transphobia. Yeah. yeah. Like, why did you do that? Yeah. I mean, like, to be fair, you know, I didn't seek out interviews with Curtis Sittenfeld and I also haven't actually read this book. I'm just reading yeah. this academic article about Jane Austen adaptations, which is quite interesting. But also, I can't imagine that 
there's any rectifying this. Yeah. (laughs) Like, if there is, if you've read this book, let us know. We'll apologize. (laughs) I will write to Curtis myself. Greenfield also understands that some queer Austen adaptations utilize Austen plots in particular because they give the respectability of the classics along with a reason to not feature any overt sexuality Mm. on screen. So in the 2017 film Before the Fall, gay attorney Ben Bennett has a relationship with fellow attorney George Wickham and alcoholic welder Lee Darcy. (laughs) I feel like Neurosurgeon is a closer adaptation to Darcy's kind of social role in the time. Yeah. But, you know, he can also be an alcoholic welder. Yeah, sure. Could be interesting. I think it would make more sense if... Elizabeth was the alcoholic welder. Like, the deal is that she's not particularly socially desirable, right? Yeah, Yeah, I guess that is the thing. Yeah, so that would make more sense, right? Yeah. Anyway, carry on. But any physicality between these men is restricted to one end of film kiss, and Greenfield says that without the trappings of Pride and Prejudice, it would be unclear if we're even meant to understand these as romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. The film depicts homosexuality as a shameful secret. I am about to say a slur. Okay, just okay, a heads up. And has Lee tell Ben, so has Darcy tell Elizabeth, in the scene analogous to Darcy's failed proposal, my impressions of you were right, you're just another pretentious faggot. Which is just a crazy thing to have Mr. Darcy say. <laughs> if you're going to write queer adaptations of Jane Austen, how hard is it to just make them fall in gay love? Like, Pride and Prejudice, like, you know, it's got some pretty, like, dark stuff about what can happen to women if they don't make the right marriages. But, you know, it's a pretty fun, lighthearted book where everyone ends up pretty happy at the end. Like, how I- hard is it to just make Mr. Darcy... A woman who's a neurosurgeon and then just leave the rest of the plot the same. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, Alice and I were actually, when I read Pride and Prejudice recently, which is why we're doing this episode, because I read Pride and Prejudice and we're like, this is incredible. We're talking about how to make a queer adaptation of Pride and Prejudice before I read any of this and I immediately have no desire to do that ever. I Uh, feel like this has given me more desire to make a queer adaptation of Pride and Prejudice because you've given me like 12 bad examples and I'm Mm -hmm. like, if I literally just like rolled out of bed onto a typewriter, I would already (laughs) have done this better than any of these. Um, Well, we'll tell you our idea and then you can write it down. We thought first of all that it makes more sense to make Darcy a woman than to make Elizabeth a man. Yeah, for sure. Because it's so much about the experiences of women in their society that Mm. making it about two men seems kind of weird yeah Yeah. and also that it should just stay in the setting and that all the like inheritance stuff can kind of get mapped onto gay stuff and then they do kissing yeah (laughs) i definitely have seen some like queer women regency romances floating around lately Mm -hmm. i can't think of titles at the moment but this is definitely a genre that's like developing it at the moment cool Greenfield also writes about how modern adaptations work around issues of economics and inheritance so many queer adaptations understandably enough, map homophobic rejection onto these disinheritance plots. Mm. So, for example, in Charlotte Green's Pride and Porters, which was published in 2018, microbrewer Aaron Bennett's father disapproves of her lesbianism and so hands over his restaurant businesses to Will Collins rather than investing in Bennett's sister's brewery. That sounds more like the kind of adaptation that I can see you just kind of reasonably thought of without just chucking some random transphobia in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm loving that the Bennett sisters have a microbrew. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I'm about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll read, watch, whatever it is. This uh, adaptation. It's a book, I think. There are also several queer adaptions of Persuasion. So in the original Persuasion, Anne Elliot decides to not marry the man that she is in love with because he is socially unsuitable. And then eight years later is regretting the fact and then ends up getting together yeah. with him anyway because it's a Jane Austen book. That sounds pretty easy to map onto a queer story where yeah. she's not yet like comfortable with her queerness or not yeah. yet out or whatever. Yeah, so there are multiple adaptations of this in which Anne Elliot is replaced with a gay male protagonist who broke off a relationship to appease their homophobic families and now regrets it and da-da-da-da-da. Is there anywhere they're both women or like, nah? I don't know of one, but okay. I, what I learned from this is that there are a lot more queer Austen adaptations than I knew. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, who's to say? Could be out there. There could have been one published in between when I started this research and when I finished it for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised by how many of these queer adaptations are making them about men rather than women. Whereas, like, as we were saying, these books are so much books just about the experience of being a woman in the world. Mm. Yeah, I feel the same about this. I, I don't want right. to straight up put it down to misogyny, but... <laughs> <laughs> Be a I'm just leaving that door open. Yeah, well, I actually left out one that was written by a woman that had Elizabeth be snubbed by Mr. Darcy originally, which happens in the book. 
because he's not interested in women and because he's upset that Charles Bingley is interested in Jane because he and Charles Bingley are lovers. I feel like that's a more interesting way to make it about queer men, to be honest. And then what happens is (laughs) (laughs) that Elizabeth comes to terms with the fact that Darcy is in love with Bingley and also with the fact that she is sexually excited by this. And then the plot kind of proceeds and Jane marries Bingley and Elizabeth marries Darcy and Bingley and Darcy just continue to have sex. Okay. Look, if that works for everyone involved. But also Elizabeth is bisexual and she is interested in Charlotte Lucas, who is her friend in the original and the adaptation, but she is unable to continue a relationship with Charlotte because she cannot offer her the financial stability that Mr. Collins can. Okay. And so Greenfield's analysis of this was that, like, you know, we have this adaptation where, like, queerness can exist and, like, a happily ever after can exist for queer men, but mm. people seem to find it much harder to imagine a queer happily ever after for queer women in this Austin setting. That's quite surprising when you consider what, like, we were saying before about how men having gay relationships was much more frowned on and much more kind of publicly talked about and women might be able to just do that in the privacy of you know yeah yeah, their homes because they weren't being as scrutinized in that environment yeah like it seems like it should be relatively easy for liz and charlotte to just like go over to each other's houses and have gay sex right yeah and no one will really notice yeah (laughs) mr collins will be none the wise (laughs) mr collins definitely thinks that two women cannot have sex oh Oh, yeah for sure for sure One of the things that I was thinking about while I was writing down these examples I wanted to tell you, apart from, like, which of these is the funniest (laughs) slash worst, is this question of if there's something kind of inherently queer about Jane Austen books, something that lends itself to these queer adaptations or not. And we have talked about ways in which these works do lend themselves to these adaptations. You know, they have these concerns of romance and disinheritance and the boundaries of appropriate relationships. Mm. But these are certainly not themes that are, I would say, like, restricted to Jane Austen or restricted Mm. even to romance novels in general. Like, they're fairly broad themes. And I felt increasingly that you could, if you were going to adapt something often enough, just end up with a queer version of basically anything. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I feel like some of the popularity of queer Austen adaptations is simply that they are popular romance novels in the public domain. Sure, yeah. And at first I felt kind of sad about this because I looked into it and I was like, oh, okay, so like Jane Austen as an individual person was probably not queer. And then I was like, oh, and I also don't think there's anything like that inherently queer about her books either. So I'm kind of like letting go of the last vestige of potential queerness for Jane Austen. And then I kind of swapped what I thought about that and felt quite encouraged by it because it feels like, you know, like the law of entropy, but for queerness or something. That <laughs> if you make enough adaptations, they will be queer because queerness is just in the world. And it's something that people are thinking about and are concerned about, whether in a good way or not. And so, like, you just kind of can't help it. Like, you know, any classic novel that's adapted a certain amount of times will be gay. Yeah. And and I quite like that. Yeah. I'm thinking of it's, like, a, you know, little thing you see floating around sometimes Mm -hmm. in people's tweets and things like that, where people are like, look, if cis-heteronormativity was actually the natural order of things, would we as a society have to regulate it so hard to maintain Mm -hmm. it? And I feel like that's what's happening here. It's like, if you just let it go... It becomes gay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I like this entropy analogy. Good, thank you. It made me think as well about, like, you know, what other queer adaptation traditions we might be able to discover. So maybe this mm. is a conversation that we can return to. I think that the obvious comparison in some ways is Shakespeare, mm-hmm. uh, who I understand, I've never really looked into this, but I understand as a person was personally, like, more likely to have been queer than Jane Austen was. Yeah. yeah. I know there's yeah. some sonnets or what have you. <laughs> Put that to the side. Yeah, now. yeah, no. But also, obviously, like, a lot of Shakespeare adaptations, and I assume my perspective on this is skewed from having, you know, lived on a university campus basically for the last <laughs> 10 years of my life, but, you know, are notably queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, you know, it's interesting to maybe come back to this discussion sometime and see, like, what is it about Shakespeare? What themes in Shakespeare lend themselves to queerness? I think also the other obvious place for this conversation to go is to The Great Gatsby. Mm, yeah. <laughs> given that it's recently come into the public domain and, like, I'm aware of, like, five queer adaptations that have been published in the last, like, year. Everyone was sitting on them waiting to publish them the moment they legally could. Yeah. Yeah. And, again, like, I know that The Great Gatsby itself is more plausibly queer than Austen's works. I've read it, but not for, like, a decade. I watched Uh, the movie on a plane once. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was a good time. Cool. So, you know, those are, I don't know, thoughts that I had. Yeah. Um, I think... 
with regard to those thoughts. It's quite funny that we have managed to make this presumably like 45 minute long podcast episode about the queerness of a person who is not queer and whose work is not queer. Yeah. <laughs> I think that speaks a lot towards the queer ability of literally anything. <laughs> yeah. well, and that brings us back to our discussion of like the word queer, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not quite the same thing, but like if you can make anything queer, then everything is queer and nothing is queer and and queer uh, becomes meaningless yeah, yeah. i do but, think we should stop saying jane austen was not queer like th- we don't have evidence that jane austen yeah, that's, was queer yeah that's fair enough but we right. shouldn't assume she wasn't because we don't have that evidence but i think to some extent like we were talking about another random historical figure this morning and we were like oh is she queer can we do an episode <laughs> on her because that's what we do every time a random historical figure comes up and so we looked her up and on her wikipedia page it was like she met her husband in 1936 when she was 21 and then was married married to him until 1988 when he died and we were like okay not queer then which is obviously not the case like mm. any of these people could be bisexual at any time or asexual or anything like that yeah i um, mean we could theoretically do an episode on anyone who has never just written down i strongly identify with my birth gender and i love only men i am a woman <laughs> But yeah, like, I think obviously, like, we also keep saying, like, oh, that seems gay. And obviously yeah. we don't really mean gay. Like, I think there is just a certain degree to which you can't include all of the caveats every time. So I think it is okay yeah, to say that Jane Austen sort of, isn't queer. That's yeah. what I'm saying, yeah. Because yeah. we not only don't have any evidence for her being, you know, a lesbian or anything like that, but we do have evidence that she was interested in men to some degree. You know, like, I, I think it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I guess if you're interested in us talking about queer adaptation histories or anything else, let us know. The takeaway from this is that we're queer, at least. Yeah, we, And everything's yes. queer if we talk about it for long enough. Yeah, I mean, like, to be clear, I think we should maybe try and do some episodes that are, like, definitely queer, yeah, though. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our content on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you find us on Apple Podcasts especially, we'd really appreciate it if you rate us and leave us a review to help more people find Queer as Fact. If you want more queer history content in between episodes, you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com if you'd like to get in touch. If you'd like to support us financially, you can become a patron of Queer as Fact, which will give you various perks, including the chance to vote on episode topics and access to additional episodes. As I said at the top of this episode, our patrons have actually had access to this episode since late last year, as well as other bonus content that doesn't appear on our main feed. If you'd like to buy some Queer as Fact merch, you can find that on our Redbubble store, where we're also called Queer as Fact. You can find links to all those things on our website, which is queerasfact.com. We're taking a break for the month of August, so thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.